0: To the Freedom Pact. Bessel is a psychiatrist, author, researcher, and educator based in Boston, USA. Since the 1970s, Bessel's research has been in the area of post traumatic stress. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, Bessel is a former co director of the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. He's a professor of psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine and is president of the Trauma Research Foundation. Bessel, this is such a pleasure. And I want to kick this off by, I guess, inquiring into quite a basic question. I want to know, to some extent, do we all have trauma?
1: Most of us have areas that if you go there, we become uptight, or we become angry, or we become withdrawn without quite knowing what it is. And to some degree, it's really a question of how pervasive it is. If you happen to hit something that touches me at a sensitive spot, hopefully, I'm mature enough to ignore your question and move on to something slightly different. If I don't can't control it, I'll become angry and slam down the computer on the floor and call your names. <laughs> yeah. So it's a question of gradation. Uh, but but it's a, basically the imprint of a trauma is a sensation that triggers you to have an intense emotion and an intense uh, physical reaction, basically.
0: Interesting. To some, it,
1: yeah. So it all pl- takes place in a very deep level of the brain that has to do with survival. Uh, so it's not cognitive, it's not like oh, you said something that made me think about something that happened to me when I was three years old, and because of that, I became really mad at you. No, it's like, you say something, I have an emotion uh, that deep down in my brain, uh, my, my brain tells me, this guy is about to kill me, uh, even though you aren't. But that's, my, that's my internal sensation, and I start reacting as if I'm in great danger, even though objectively, Nothing particularly happened, huh? so it's your your brain continues to interpret certain sensations as if you're back there instead of here.
0: This you know affective I mean? instead of cognitive.
1: Okay. Uh, so, so, but it's very it's very deep in the brain. It's not mm-hmm. like oh, let me try to understand this. No, cognition actually. Uh, uh, we did the very first brain scans of traumatized people, and what we saw is that. When people revisit their trauma, the whole speech part of the brain and the understanding part of the brain goes offline. And most of us have been there. That Most of us have become befuddled, dumbfounded, lost our marbles. Most of us have had some experience with losing it. Mm. Uh, uh, becoming too angry getting triggered by somebody say, saying things that we say afterwards I didn't mean that and it comes from somewhere else
0: right right to some extent uh, is it fair to say that we all
1: have some sort of trauma uh, you know, the vast majority of people do not have perfect lives mm. uh, uh, very few of us have perfect parents uh, so uh, the, the, the poet was great he said they really screw up your mom and dad. And like, like, stuff happens to people. And so nobody is exempt. But if you are molested, habitually beaten up, bullied, gang raped, uh, ex- exposed to terrible tragedies, then it becomes really intense and becomes a much larger dimension of your life.
0: Mm, definitely. I was thinking that, Um, One thing that I kind of got when I was reading your book that I've been thinking about anyway is if we're just talking, say, just in terms of PTSD, uh, I was kind of wondering about the subjectivity of it. And let's say that two people experience, I guess, the same event. And I was thinking, is it possible that one may get severely traumatized and it may not affect another person to the point where they would be clinically diagnosed? Is that possible, no, or
1: do you think that's not true? No, it absolutely happens all the time, of course. you said we have different reactions. We have mm. different temperaments. We have different backgrounds. You know, our brain is really an interpretive system. Uh, our brain is a predictor of what will happen in the future. So if um, you start using a harsh tone of voice with me, uh, my brain may either interpret that like, oh, he's having a bad day, let me be thoughtful with him. Or my brain may react like, oh my God, he's just like my alcoholic father who beat me up in the middle of the night. And I will become really very terrified by that. And so it it's all depends on the automatic interpretations that our brains make about the input that we get. And so, uh, for example, if you're trained as an emergency room physician or as an EMT or as a policeman and you see mangled corpses, you are trained to interpret that and to do something about it. I say, oh, here's a dead person, I do the following. And you get trained to uh, to uh, to neutralize the emotion that you might have. And but training is very important. If the rest of us would come across a mangled corpse, we would probably have nightmares about it. Uh, so it depends very much on your own interpretation of events, which is um, the function of many issues, including uh, an internal sense that I can fall back on somebody to take care of me. So uh, if you have children at home, uh, they're great examples of preachers who get very upset all the time. uh, But as long as their mom and dad are around, within seconds after being held, they're fine again. So as long as you have parents or colleagues or a spouse who is really there for you, when something bad happens to you, your body can let go. Uh, if, if that support system disappears and you don't have a, a guild of fellow police officers or fellow soldiers, or fellow people who work in a, a radio program who can sort of be there for you when get very bad, then you're left on your own devices and being left to your own devices makes it much more likely to become traumatic.
0: Interesting. And just in terms of what you discussed but there, if you and I could experience the same traumatic experience, one of us may get traumatized, the other one won't. You mentioned a yeah, support absolutely. network yeah. being important there. Has research uncovered any personality traits or um, any other individual factors that may determine whether someone gets traumatized and someone doesn't?
1: yeah it's it's not really a central i must say you know i've seen thousands of traumatized people in my various offices and clinics. Uh, you know i have never met somebody where my reaction is oh how silly that they are traumatized by that uh, uh, my modal reaction when somebody tells me that they have guns for is, uh, is oh my god that's unbelievable mm. and then People say, me me don't believe me. I said, Yes, I believe you, but it's unbelievable that people have to go through terrible things like this. And so the issue of predisposing personality has never been very central to my thinking because the events that people have are so horrendous. Right. Right. Um, what what about
0: disassociation? How how does that what's the feature of that? This this really interests me.
1: So disassociation, of course, is one of the body's natural reactions to d- to deal with something that's terrible and you shut down your emotions you know, like that's i think this happens very much uh, also when you're uh, a traffic officer and you come across uh, car accidents, you see mangled corpses you sort of dissociate and you are able to cut off your feelings you become this machine that does just the right things and then you have learned to uh, call keep your body calm and not to get hijacked by your emotions. It's quite possible that uh, afterwards, you'll go home and have a nightmare, or start drinking, or beat up your on your kids. So the, the dissociation may not be last long enough for you to have no reaction at all. But dissociation is very much a way that kids deal with um, living in abusive households, and they stop feeling, and they stop noticing, You're just uh, they are able to shut off part of their brains and pretend like nothing is happening. In the animal world, you call this playing possum. Uh, animals do that also. They just they look like they're dead. Uh, and it seems to have been a very good evolutionary um, inheritance that we have. That uh, if if we play dead in the jungle, supposedly, uh, if you're a live animal, that means ha, you're alive. You're uh, tasty, I'm going to eat you, the moment you're dead, and you look dead, a predator comes by and said, now that the dead creature is diseased, they will pass you by. Right? And I think that's sort of the origin of dissociation, is that if you go dead, you're more likely to survive. Right. right. Um, but sometimes, yeah. for many people, the dissociation becomes a habitual way of moving to the world, and that means that you're out of it for a good amount of the time. So you cannot engage in things that give you pleasure, engage in things that, uh, that make your life grow, and you basically get stuck in shutting down.
0: I've spoken to a number of clinical psychologists on the show. I also have a number of friends in that profession. Right. Many of them have told me that through working in things like rape crisis lines, uh, working in highly traumatic situations, that they kind of reached a point where, as a defense mechanism, that they could be sitting opposite someone, telling them the most unbelievably harrowing things, and they'd their emotions would kind of, as you said, disassociated. In your career, did that ever happen to you?
1: Well, you know, that's an interesting thing you raised there. Um, I've had that experience many times, not so much recently, uh, until I learned about the mirror neuron system, in that, uh, like, you have a very nice energy about you, and so. I feel a sense of pleasure talking to you as long as you have a nice energy. And if somebody whispers in your ear, oh, something terrible has happened out there, you start becoming a little distracted and our interview will go down because I'll miss your energy as a person to talk to. So a very common experience that I was appalled by initially is I would sit with people who would tell me horrendous stories and I would feel nothing. And I'd go like, what's wrong with you? Are you getting burnt out? Like, like here, this person telling me this story. And then I realized, no, I'm actually picking up their energy, that they're, they're able to tell the story in a very disembodied way so that you can take over, but I don't have to feel. Right. So some people learn to tell horrendous trauma stories without having any feelings. And what they pick up is the lack of feelings And we, our mirror neural system makes it have a similar reaction. So in fact, our reaction is a dissociative reaction that we mirror from the people that we're working with. And so that should be a warning sign to us, like, oh, this person is shut down. And they are so locked in that telling the story, but their emotions are gone. And so then my job becomes is to help them to feel. So my... My shutting down is a sign for me. I'm picking up what my patient's problem is. And we need to both work on feeling alive, even though we're facing terrible things here.
0: That is absolutely fascinating. And it got me thinking just in terms of the uh, feeling approach. It made me think that in terms of cultures, because I know, for instance, I'm here in the UK. Here we have yeah. what I would describe quite a stoic culture. It's a bit taboo to talk about your feelings. Here.
1: Less so. Less so, You guys are getting a little bit more touchy feely than you used to be, actually.
0: Right, right? yeah, we're becoming <laughs> a bit more flowery.
1: But it was the, the highest abs- aspiration for the Brits was to feel nothing. <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah. right.
0: And, and I just wonder, um, are there any cultures around the world which are particularly good at dealing with traumatic events?
1: Well, that's a fascinating question. Uh, I've always looked for that, you know, Um, and I think a lot of people are like, who does it well? And then a lot of people think, oh, the Buddhists have figured it out. They're mellow, uh, they're into compassion, they're into mindfulness. They really have conquered the market. And then you look at what's evolving and that the three worst massacres in recent histories have taken place in Buddhist countries. And you go, oh, the Buddhists also have not quite taken care of it, eh? the massacres in Sri Lanka, in Myanmar, and in Cambodia, they were Buddhist cultures. So the Christians certainly never managed. Uh, You know, the Brits (laughs) never managed, the Dutch never managed. (laughs) The American Indians didn't. So it's a universal human challenge eh? of how to deal with, with terrible things. That are part of our of what it's like to be human, right? People have always always done terrible things to each other. Uh, we are at once a very generous and a very cruel species, you know.
0: I would love to kind of just like circle back, and I would love to know, um, in terms of, I guess we kind of touched on it a little bit, but I'd just love to just get a clarification of how trauma manifests itself physiologically in the body and then how that differs to how it affects us in the brain. How does it affect us in the body and then in the brain?
1: So basically, uh, what happens when you get traumatized is that the part of your brain that makes you realize it's over gets stuck. And so you get fixated on something from the past, and a certain sensation or emotional input can make you Behave and feel, and physiologically behave exactly the same way as you felt when you were raped or when you saw so your kid being run over, and you secrete all the same stress hormones. Your heart rate goes up. You do all the same physiological things as if it were happening right now. So you keep, on the physiological level, reliving that trauma over and over again in your, in your physiological states, and so the. The job of treatment is to help people to move through the experience and to feel on a very elementary level. Yes, that's what happened to me. And I was eight years old, or 12 years old, or 30 years old. And today is September 1st, 2021. And it is different. Uh, but to come to that capacity to really know the difference between past and present can be a very difficult process.
0: Right, so what your goal is is to update them to their current reality.
1: Yeah, my goal is to help them to update themselves to their current reality. Right. Like as as an outside person, I cannot control much of what you feel or what you do, but I can provide conditions where you might come to that realization uh, more easily. Yeah. Does this mean, then, that at the core
0: of, I guess, trauma in the brain is the information processing
1: system? Is that the problem? Oh, absolutely. It's it's about information processing, yeah. It's about, uh, so the issue with trauma. People think that trauma is that event that happened a long time ago. Mm. But that event, terrible as it was, it's over. And you really should say, if we if were all perfectly healthy, you'd say, oh my God, that was terrible. My kid got run over by a drunk driver, but no, it's a long time ago and I can love other children and I can go on with my life. It's a thing of the past. But when you're traumatized, it's not a thing of the past. It's happening to you right now. And so the brain changes so that the past is experienced as the present. And this is, not, uh, this is not the rational part of the brain, uh, because on some level, even when you're very traumatized, you know that you're not going to hurt me, uh, but I feel like you're going to hurt me and do the same thing to me as that other person did. And those feelings override my rationality and I'll behave towards you as if you are a horrible person who's going to hurt me. And you're going to go like, What the hell is this guy doing? (laughs) So it creates a lot of of turmoil in your environment. People become scared of you. Yeah. Um,
0: Yeah. You say in the book, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe in their bodies. The past is alive in the form of knowing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs. And in an attempt to control these processes... They often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and in numbing awareness of what is played out inside, they learn to hide from themselves. So as you say, in this case, it means that the past keeps revisiting
1: them in the present moment. Right. Without them knowing that it's the past. Mm. So you look at a certain way at me and I go, this guy's going to hurt me. And I'm going to become defensive and we're going to have a difficult interview and and nothing will tell me, oh, you know, just because he has the same eyebrows as my uncle who beat me up, do I get angry? You don't make that connection. And even after you make that connection, you still go, you, you still have the same reaction, but at least you know why it is right now. But understanding why you screwed up does not abolish being screwed up a step in the right direction, but doesn't take care of things. Is it possible to completely heal from
0: a, a really devastating trauma?
1: Absolutely. That's that's a real outcome measure in all of my studies mm. for people to be able to say, it's over. It happened back then, and today I'm alive, September 1, 2001. Yes, that is the goal of treatment, and I've seen it, After EMDR, I've seen it after psychedelics, I've seen it after good neurofeedback, I've seen seen it after a number of different methods that people go like, it's over.
0: Was there a a favorite case from your career that you look back and you say, this was the one that I was most proud of? Was there
1: one which comes to mind? Well, actually, I have all these cases in the book. about cases, my my most some of my most dramatic uh, effects early on were my cases with the EMDR uh, of people who had who had seen horrendous traumas, were completely uh, engulfed by it, and we did this strange technique EMDR eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, and after a few sessions, people say it's over, it doesn't bother me anymore. Uh, let's talk about my children. Let's talk about something else. Because that rape, it just was a very bad thing, but I'm fine now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so EMDR was a very powerful introduction for me. I see it these days very powerfully in our work with MDMA, psychedelics, uh, that people really go like, and they go very, very deep reliving of their trauma in a way, observing, and they come out of it and said, Oh, that poor kid. But he had to, what he had to suffer. I feel so bad that he had to, had to deal it. I mean, if you talk about yourself, yeah. Yeah.
0: Why does EMDR work? What was the science behind
1: Oh well, uh, it, it's, so uh, historically, so is the issue that I became first familiar with EMDR in 1989. I thought it was hokey and crazy. Uh, people in my lab started to do EMDR over my objections. And my first patients who came back from EMDR was 1993. In 1995, I started to apply to do an EMDR study through the National Institute of Health. It took me, till about, took me about eight years to get the funding. Uh, we showed that EMDR is spectacularly effective. Then I went back to get brain scans, to look at the mechanism. All these grants were rejected. And then we started to steal money from other grants, put money aside from other things. And finally, in 2015, we had put enough money together to do a study. And so it took 30 years. And then we did a study that showed that EMDR changed the brain circuits, where the connection between your observing self and your body self and your sense of time gets you rearranged so your brain is capable of viewing an experience in a different light because the circuits have changed.
0: Does something like uh, electroconvulsion therapy, ECT, does that have the same impact? No! No?
1: No? <laughs> no, that's sort of the opposite. That's sort of... The complete you know, opposite. Uh, it's just throwing a bomb into the brain. Right. Saying, Good luck to you. Uh, no, no. <laughs> it's actually a horrifying question to me. It's almost <laughs> triggering, I would say. <laughs> triggering. You're,
0: you're not a fan. You're not a fan.
1: Yeah.
0: Interesting. Um you say no, I,
1: yeah. I, I'm quite sure it may work for a few extremely depressed people, but my our experience with traumatized people is uh they're they get so oftentimes get so disturbed when they get ACT, they usually get much worse.
0: Interesting. Interesting.
1: You, you need to have what little sliver of mind you have left. You need to use that in order to recover from trauma. So you don't want to wipe out the mind, you know? <laughs> right.
0: right. I love it, man. I love it. Um, one of the things I'd love to pick up on in the book is um, you talk about, I guess, at one point you talk about like suppressing information. And you say, as long as you keep secrets and suppress information, you are fundamentally at war with yourself. The critical issue is allowing yourself to know what you know. That takes an enormous amount of courage. How big of an issue is that in the role of trauma?
1: Well, you know, when you read these quotes, I go like, boy, that's good. I wish I'd written that. And I go, oh, actually, I wrote it. That's good for you. Yeah, that's how it, that's how it is. You know, uh, yes. Yes. Uh, you know, in order to go on, uh, you you oftentimes need to block things out. You know, if if somebody you love gets killed, you need to somehow go on with your life and and feed your children and and make a living. And so uh, in order to go on, sometimes you need to push things aside, and some people are very good at it and say, it didn't bother me, um, but my wife suddenly died or blah, blah, blah. Uh, Uh, because I threw myself into my work uh, and then by working so hard they cut off their feelings Uh, um, their heart freezes actually and that's all so you work so hard in order to not to feel uh, not to feel how troubled you are with other people how hard it is you feel for you to feel affection for people because the feeling of affection now has been associated with horrendous trauma and loss, Um, it becomes very hard to be generous with people, and so uh, you need to actually at some point find a way of actually seeing what you went through and say, yes, it was terrible, and you need to cry about it, and you just say, that was very sad, it was a very sad, horrifying event that I went through, and now it's over, and I feel the self-compassion piece there is very, very important to really you need to feel what you went through and not to blame yourself. And there is a tendency, particularly trauma that happens in your family, to say, oh, this happened to me because I was a bad kid. That's what you're being told. I mean, you have a violent alcoholic parent. They beat you up. They say terrible things about you. And you go like, if I were a nice child, my parents wouldn't beat me up. If I were just a nice child, nobody would do this to me. And so this means I'm a fundamentally bad person. That is something that tends to stay with people for the rest of their lives. Uh, Some of us have grandmothers. uh, Society has always been violent and done terrible things to people. And some of us grandmothers who, when they're 90 years old, are depressed and negative and difficult and they still carry that feeling of, I'm a fundamentally bad person inside of themselves. Despite the fact they may have 37 grandchildren all of who love her lover, that doesn't seem to heal it. And it looks like you really need to go back to see what you went through back then as a kid, and to really see what it was like for that kid to be beaten up, and to realize some older state of consciousness, like, it wasn't her fault. She was a cute kid. She didn't do anything wrong. But the process of meeting yourself and, and having compassion for yourself is an arduous process.
0: Yeah. I love that answer. I love that answer. Um, one thing that I would love to ask you about is, um, in my own life, I guess, the mild traumas that I've been through, you know, breakups, uh, you know, job losses, whatever, very often that now looking back, now I can piece the dots, not in the moment. They've turned out to be some of the best things that have ever happened to me. And I would love to know, do you believe, have you seen cases in which PTSD or, you know, severe traumas can become catalysts for people to I guess, launch into a better stage of their lives? Like, do you believe in uh, post-traumatic growth?
1: Oh, oh, absolutely. There's people who, who are able to really go through a spiritual transformation. Uh, I hear that a lot of people after, uh, you know, in the middle of COVID, are really have had very bad experiences, and they're really reassessing the priorities in their lives. And so it happens it doesn't happen as often as we wish it would happen. Right? So I actually, I was just asked to be on the panel of the American Psychological Association about trauma and they wanted to talk about post-traumatic growth only. And I thought, well, you know, yeah, don't forget trauma is about horror that really is, has a very profound, terrible impact on you. I said, now let's just talk about post-traumatic growth. I said, no, we cannot just talk about post-traumatic growth. You really have to talk about trauma is a horrendous event, right? and we need to start there. And we need to help people to deal with the horror of whatever happens, and that indeed some people are able to use that information and create a new and better worlds. Right? Sometimes I like to say that all good things in humanity has been have been produced by traumatized people uh, who find new ways. Or maybe some of many of the bad things in the world also have happened by traumatized people who keep repeating their trauma. <laughs> so, I, I always say, don't gild the lily too much. Don't 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 go into oh, it's so good for people. No, it's not good for people. <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: I I definitely agree. Um, I would love to kind of pick up because in the book I loved that you were kind of talking about like um, connections, and you said. Being able to feel safe with other people is probably the single most important aspect of mental health. Uh, safe connections are fundamental to meaningful, satisfying lives. How do we build safe connections with others?
1: Well, one of us needs to be wise. <laughs> it must be you, it's not me. <laughs> uh, one of us needs to know ourselves. One of us needs to... Uh, be able to have done the work uh, to have learned to regulate ourselves and to learn to recognize this and one of us at least needs to have the compassion to understand what leads people to do uh, crazy hurtful things and they go oh I'm sorry you're doing crazy hurtful things Uh, and I'm sure you would really like to live your life doing crazy hurtful things so uh, let's see how we can help you to make uh, to be less impulsive and to really take better care of yourself. Um, But how do you feel safe with people? By meeting acceptance, by meeting love, by meeting meeting, um, clarity also. I think clarity is very important. Like, this is what we're going to do. This is what the rules are, uh, how long it will last. No, you cannot call me at 3 o'clock in the morning. I was my plan. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, I I prefer if you would not come to my office after cutting yourself and bleeding all over my rug. In fact, I'll need to charge you for the cleaning fee if you bleed my floor. (laughs) Uh, But but we need to be met with also great curiosity by the people you have a relationship with and say. I noticed that that's very hard for you. What happened to you? Uh, and so, so it's really about mindfulness and compassion and uh, a real, real openness to understand each other. Right, right. So bright lines of
0: boundaries, I guess, are really, really important.
1: Boundaries are important, but within the boundaries, great generosity and openness. Yeah,
0: I I agree wholeheartedly. Um, I would love to kind of just pick up on uh what you talk about in the book because it seems to me like, uh, from reading your work that it's very difficult. And I may have the wrong impression here, but it seems to me like from reading your work that it's very difficult to logically think of think ourselves out of a very traumatic situation. Uh, it seems to me like you're an advocate that talk therapies can be a useful tool, but probably they're not going to completely heal someone of their trauma. Is that and, is that the right impression? Yeah,
1: that, that's correct. That, that trauma doesn't lodge in the vaginal part of your brain. Mm. Uh, you don't get traumatized because you're stupid. <laughs> and so for you to explain to me why I feel this way might serve, be helpful to help me understand why I have all these weird reactions. It won't make them go away. Um, and it also be, make me feel very offend, offended again, because like, I know I'm crazy. What are you going to do? How can you help me to not feel crazy? And uh, so, uh, but I, I'm impressed with how many psychologists still think that it's part of the rational part of your brain, but that's not where it is. It's like, you know, I just had spent a good amount of summer hanging out with my grandkids. Uh, three and five years old, you know. Uh, if a three-year-old wakes up in the middle of the night screaming, you don't explain to them what's going on. You hold them and you rock them and you sing songs to them. Eh? You don't say, "Hey, uh, don't wake up at three o'clock in the morning. I have to go get to work, to work in the morning, and if you wake me up, I'm going to be uh, get grouchy." And then I'll go to work and I get fired for my job because you wake me up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And your three-year-old goes like, oh, that's, that's good to know. Now I won't scream up scream anymore at 3 o'clock in the morning. No, that's not how it works. You know, like uh, you need to calm that system down. Huh? And, and that's not a rational process. But talking is important in that if you feel like you're being met by people and people hear what you're saying, And if you can find a language for yourself and the language for your experience and identify what happens in your body, you start having a sense of ownership over that creature that you are. So language is important. It's not enough. You need to actually work with the physiology. And you need to have experiences, visceral experiences, that directly contradict terror and helplessness. And that's, I've been a very great advocate of that actually, like if you have been raped doing martial arts, might be very helpful. So your body feels like, I can defend myself. I, I can stand up for myself and I'm not completely helpless. Uh, to have an experience of, uh, of a very loving experience, sometimes on, on psychedelics, let's say, give you feeling, oh, I see the world in a more generous and warm place, deep down in my bottom, in my bones now. Huh? Uh, or if you join a, a tango dancing class, and you learn how to be in sync with another person, you go like, wow, that's what it feels like when people move together in a synchronous way. That is so enjoyable. Huh? So you need to have experiences that actually heal that disconnection that comes from trauma.
0: I've said on the show for quite a long time that I personally find it incredibly difficult to control my mind with my mind, but we're walking in nature, going to the gym, uh, deep breath with cold showers. I find those things so much more effective. So I would love to ask you, what would be some other uh, ways that we can move our body? I guess maybe even body awareness approaches or other exercises that we could do physically that could be
1: useful in treating trauma? So the only thing that I've studied, like scientifically, is yoga. And uh, our results with yoga were surprisingly extremely good. Uh, Yoga had a better effect than any medication we have ever studied Uh, before psychedelics, because psychedelics turned out to be very good. Uh, So I think any exercise where you, or you move together with other people. I think coral singing, I think a lot of people whales probably do choral singing, uh, hopefully still. Uh, um, moving to people, uh, anything that, that gives you a sense of communal moving and uh, being in sync with other human beings. Cooking with people, making things with other people, creating seeds with other people, yeah.
0: I love it, man. I love it. Your book, The Body Keeps the Score, absolutely fantastic. It has the Freedom Pact seal of recommendation. I would love to kind of, um, I guess, sign this off. We always fire through some quick fire questions at the end. So you wrote a fantastic book. What have been uh, some books which have impacted your lives, which you could recommend to our audience?
1: Oh, Um. I think anything written by Eve Ensler, uh, who calls herself V these days. Uh, in the Body of the World, the Vagina Monologues, uh, the Apology, beautiful literature about surviving trauma and how to deal with it. Um, the Work of Peter Levine of working with the body is lovely. Um, if you want to get into the brain, um, Antonio Damasio, who doesn't know about trauma, but sure knows about the brain, is a great way of understanding how the brain organizes information. Um, if you want to get really bold, meet Jaak Panksepp, J-A-A-K-P-A-N-K-S-E-P-P, Affective Neuroscience, um, War Trauma, Carl uh, Malentis, what it's like to go to war, uh, the Booker, Man Booker Prize winner a few, few years ago in Australian by the name of Richard Flanagan, The Narrow Road to the North. Um, I mean, there's so much. I mean, there's a very rich English literature of the First World War, uh, very much worth reading. Goodbye to all that and um, anything by Toni Morrison. <laughs> the, the world is, is filled with
0: it. Some fantastic recommendations there. My last question for you today, before I ask you to sign off and tell these guys where they can connect with you and your work and any upcoming projects, is the question we sign off all of our podcasts with. My last question for you today is, what makes a life worth living? Um,
1: It's very simple. Love. Love Loving connection with people. What's life all about, you know, um, and that's what we need to be here for is to have love and connection. with people.
0: Yeah. I love it, man. I love it. Uh, yeah. tell these guys about your work and anywhere you'd like to signpost them, anything you've got up, come in, please tell, t- t- tell these guys where they can connect with you and whatnot.
1: So I have two websites, uh, the trauma research foundation and my personal website, Bessel uh, somewhat overlapping Uh, the time research foundation is very active in making connections with programs all around the world refugee programs in jordan programs in somalia uh, afghanistan india uh, yoga programs programs in prison uh, programs juvenile delinquents uh, yoga programs in inner city schools um, neurofeedback programs Psychedelic programs. So the Trauma Research Foundation is very much into connecting people and making a large variety of different methods uh visible to people interested in trauma. Basically,
0: I love it, man. I love it. I loved your book. I absolutely love connecting with you. You've been doing great work for for decades. So, man, I want to pay my gratitude to you. You you've been superb, man. A thank pleasure. you. Man, I, nice hope, man.
1: I hope we can got hike up Mount Snowden next time that I come to Wales. Like
0: <laughs> I would I would love to, to do right. it. I did it
1: for sunrise once. It was uh quite <laughs> beautiful.
0: So yeah, man, right. thank you so much for coming on the show. Great. It's a pleasure.